Welcome to the ASHG Genetically Speaking podcast. ASHG is producing this mini-series as part of their work to support the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Roundtable on Genomics and Precision Health. In this series, we'll talk to members of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Roundtable on Genomics and Precision Health. We're your hosts, Eli Robertson. And I'm Michelle Penny. And we're here today with Mira Irons and Krista Martin of the Roundtable's Adoption Working Group. Thanks for being here with us today. Mira, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi there. Thanks, Eli. Um, I'm Mira Irons. I'm a um, medical geneticist and a pediatrician. Um, 30 years of academic uh, medicine in Boston. And um, then I uh, transitioned to national medical organizations. And I'm currently the um, CEO and president of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Sure. Good morning, Eli. Uh, I'm Krista Martin. I am the Chief Scientific Officer at Geisinger. It's a health system in Pennsylvania. I am board certified as the Clinical Laboratory Director. Um, and prior to coming to Geisinger, I was in the Department of Human Genetics at Emory University and also the University of Chicago, um, where I first started my career. Thanks for taking the time to come and talk with us. Mira and Krista, for those who are unfamiliar with the uh, the Workers' Roundtable and the Adoption Working Group. Could you explain your role on the working group and what the goals are of the working group within the roundtable? I think, um, you know, Krista and I are, are the co-chairs of the working group. And the goal of the adoption working group is, is pretty self-explanatory. It's really to look at the adoption of genomics across the healthcare environment and look for examples of of uh, where adoption of genomics has has been successfully implemented and examples of, you know, to, to get a better understanding of what the barriers and opportunities are. Chris, is there anything you want to add? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I think uh, in addition to what Mira said, uh, we also are trying to look for gaps. Um, so what is needed to actually better be able and more easily be able to adopt uh, genomics into everyday healthcare? Um, and so that is a big focus of our group and was a big focus of the workshop that we hosted in the fall. Thanks, Krista. The topic for that workshop was uh, realizing the potential of genomics across the continuum of precision healthcare. Why was it important to cover that topic now, would you say? You know, I, I would say that it was important to finally get a sense of, of what was happening in the environment. You know, the, the group, the, the adoption working group had done a lot of pre-work to get to framing that the concept for that workshop. And in that, we um, looked at four healthcare systems that had adopted genomics with different models into their healthcare um, system. We looked at individuals that were using polygenic risk scores. We looked at environment um, uh, employer testing, initiated genetic testing. And we realized that some healthcare systems actually were um, implementing genomics in their healthcare system, and so the patients in those healthcare systems did get were advantage, you know, had the advantage of that. And other healthcare systems hadn't come that far. And so the goal of the workshop was really, as Krista just said, to really identify the gaps and to finally get a better understanding of what are the opportunities and what are the barriers. And we, you know, really are trying to shift from using genomic information in a reactive way to more proactively. Um, so instead of relying on symptoms that present and doing genetic testing to figure out why somebody has something, 
how do we get upstream of disease and really use genomics to its full potential um, and be able to interrogate our DNA early and often um, to look for risk factors that might contribute to an individual's um, potential to have disease. After having had this workshop, do you think that you found any new challenges that maybe you didn't anticipate or some opportunities that you could follow up on that maybe were totally new? Or was it really what you were expecting when you were planning to have the workshop in the first place? You know, I think you always find out something new, you know, and I think, um, you know, that was important. But I think it was important also that there was a lot of agreement, you know, during the workshop. And, you know, the the sessions in the workshop were we started with with the patient. You know, that was really the first panel that we talked to. And, and what were, what was the patient's perspective on this and how did they view this? And then we went to different sort of different stakeholders. And, you know, the, the three things that that really seemed to, to rise to the top were um, were guidance. You know, do doctors know what to do when they get these results of, of uh, clinically significant variants to try to anticipate or, or screen people um, uh, for, uh, for the conditions that they're at increased risk for? Um, how can the system help um, physicians? Um, because this information is changing all the time and keeping up with what's the right thing is important. So, you know, how can EHR systems or things like that provide clinical decision support? And then where's the where's the field going from a laboratory testing standpoint? Um, and so, you know, I think that those were, were at least to my mind, um, better articulated and and seemed to stand out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think a lot of what we learned at the workshop was expected, but we also identified new opportunities um, or barriers that we need to focus on, like uh, Mira alluded to thinking about clinical decision support tools and how do we support people um, to order genetic testing and make it more accessible to people. Um, we learned that, you know, still genetic testing is unfortunately treated differently than other types of testing that is done as part of healthcare. Um, and I think we need to get beyond that to treat it as part of routine care, just like any other test that is ordered. So how do we make people, physicians, patients, et cetera, comfortable with that type of ordering tests and also using the information? So as the as the discussion developed during the workshop, um, what what really were some of the key messages do you think that that in addition to some of the things that you've alluded to just now that really came out of that that day's dialogue? Well, you know, I think that from my standpoint, one of the key messages, and Crystal alluded to this, was how do we normalize genetic testing as part of just routine medical testing for, for people's health care? Um, it, it is seen as in many healthcare systems as exceptional. It's, you know, the results are in different parts of that, in different parts of the medical record. There are a lot of physicians don't know how to order the testing because it's there, it's always ordered in a different way. And so how, how do we actually create a system where we, we normalize that testing, but also create the supports that physicians know um, so that they know what to do with the results? Um, because from a practical standpoint, there aren't enough geneticists or genetic counselors in the world <laughs> to, to care for or to interpret these results clinically for you know the current population of, what, 330 million people. And so how can, you know, what 
what is important for all physicians to know in order to take care of their patients, and then what has to go to a specialist, like medical geneticists or the rare disease um, community. And I think another thing that came out of the discussion is, um, you know, a lot of things have changed over the years um, with just DNA sec sequencing technology in general. So we now, you know, know that we can sequence um, a person's genome with high fidelity. Um, we can do it much faster than we could ever do it before. And the cost has come down immensely. Um, and so one of the things, though, that still um, is on that barrier list is coverage. Um, and it's still seen as, you know, an impediment to ordering a test because they don't know if it's going to be covered or not. And again, back to the point of um, genetic testing being treated differently and outside of normal health care, I think we have to get beyond that, um, that it's covered as part of care um, and that it's freely available to people who, who need the testing um, in order to take better care of our patients. And I would just add that, you know, I think we also have to really um, think about the shift from caring for patients, how, how, we, how we interpret this testing in patients that present with um, uh, evidence of disease um, so that you know that someone has, has clinical symptoms and so you do appropriate testing to try to determine what their diagnosis is and how to treat them. Two, how do we use testing um, that's available also that can pre-symptomatically um, identify people who are at increased risk? Because then you go from diagnosis and treatment to screening and it's that screening piece that isn't as as um, it isn't done as much in the healthcare system. I mean, I think genetic rare disease geneticists are involved in screening because of newborn screening and also you know prenatal screening. But um, really, in in adult medical care, um, there are screening tests that are done, but but not as many of these genetic um, uh, screening tests. And so there isn't a lot of information on what you do with the results. So if a patient comes to a doctor with the results, is how do you screen them? You know, how often do you do the testing and things like that? I think you're right about the way that genetic information can be viewed as an exceptional kind of information that can be difficult to handle. And large biomedical institutions, large hospitals, research-intensive universities associated with those hospitals already have the genetics clinics and geneticists and genetic counselors to be able to understand and access this information. What do you think is the single biggest or most important challenge to being able to adopt genetics routinely across the spectrum of care providers? I think getting people comfortable with the fact that genetic information is not different from other types of medical information that is used as part of healthcare. Um, you know, we, Mary and I have both used the word exceptional several times already, but I feel like the minute that you say anything about DNA, people are like, I don't, I don't know enough about that to handle those types of results. Yet we know um, things like polygenic risk scores um, can now help us understand an individual's risk that is no different from any other screening test that puts people into buckets of low, moderate, or high risk. That's the same type of information that you get back from other types of screening tests. And I think people need to get comfortable with that and forget about how you got to that point, that it was based on DNA information versus any other type of information that we use in routine screening tests. 
and be able to feel comfortable to explain that information to a patient just like they do with any other type of screening test. I think we can all agree that that's really important. We've had uh, we've had many interesting conversations um, at the round table about you know the key issues in accessing genomic medicine for clinical care. Anything, any thoughts that came out of the the round table with respect to access, perhaps even what it would take to build an equitable precision healthcare system and how you saw those being addressed in the field? I think a big question about, all great questions, a big question about um, equity is the fact that our reference genomes, um, that, you know, we we, uh, can make predictions from are, are heavily weighed toward people from of European backgrounds. And so really making an effort to diversify the reference genomes that the laboratories and um, uh, get their, make their interpretations from is, is of paramount importance. And I think we're already seeing movement on that. I, you know, if you look at the NIH All of Us program, um, you know, the goal of that program is that the, um, one of the goals of the program is that you know there, there will be representation of of people involved in that program that mirrors our society and there are you know numerous and international um, efforts to create a better more diverse reference genome so that's the first thing um, but I think the other the other issue is just is really to know to know how to interpret it you know, to know what the laboratory report says and to, to better understand what what you do with it. I tend to look at, at, at this question from the clinical perspective. It's like, what do I do with the results? Um, and, you know, when I was um, really more heavily involved in clinical medicine, I used to have my colleagues, uh, my non-genetics colleagues call me and they say, I'm reading this result and this is what I think it says. And, you know, is am I interpreting it correctly? So I think we just have to make this, we have to make this easier for people to interpret and um, to know what to do with and to actually have that management guide to, um, to know what they do next. And, you know, as part of the workshop, we had a session that featured patients telling their stories. And I think this is where um, the disparities in how genetic information is used really came out with their stories and just hearing from the various individuals about where they struggled with even getting genetic testing to be ordered when it should have been. Um, so something as straightforward as somebody who had cancer at an early age should have had genetic testing to determine if they carried a specific variant that put them at risk and then could be used to take better care of them. That was never ordered. Um, we even had a genetic counselor telling her personal story about how she struggled um, when she found out genetic information that was clearly affecting her health and how she had to take things in her own hands to take care of herself. Um, and so it really, I think that session highlighted and just hearing right directly from the patients that, you know, we underestimate like what is needed to support people and we need to do a better job um, at providing information, figuring out where the patient's at, what information do they need how do they use it as part of their healthcare, and how do we make it easier for them to use it as part of their healthcare going forward? Yeah, and I, you know, and I think this is incredibly important. It's important for everybody, but I think I always think about people who potentially are at risk for genetic conditions who don't have a lot of family members. You know, they may be the index case in their family, so they they don't know what they may be at risk for, or they don't know anything about the condition. Um, 
so that um, and and we're seeing a lot some of that in the direct to consumer environment. And you know, this didn't come up during our workshop, but I remember a previous workshop that that this roundtable did, um, which was amazingly compelling to me, and it was focused on direct to consumer testing. And there was a young woman who actually was given a gift of a direct to consumer test by a family member, and one of those one of you know um, one of the uh, and, and she was really focused on it from an ancestry standpoint. Um, and um, what she learned on a Friday afternoon, and it's always a Friday afternoon, um, what she learned on a Friday afternoon was that she was a carrier of, of the, you know, she carried a, a clinically significant variant of BRCA1 gene. And, she, and I remember her saying, and I spent the weekend with Dr. Google. And so she spent the entire weekend um, just reading all of this conflicting and, and frankly, terrifying information on the internet. And then on Monday, you know, the, on Monday, she was able to contact her physician who put her in touch with the genetic counselor who actually got her the information that she needed. Um, and, you know, I think that, that the information that's available to parent, to patients is really important, but it, it also has to come through the physicians and, and our healthcare team nurses, you know, um, NPs, uh, physician assistants, to be able to know where to go for the testing. And, and that really leads, I, in my opinion, to the professional societies, um, because the professional societies, at least in the, in, in the states here, they develop the clinical guidelines, the clinical practice guidelines. And so most physicians, many physicians, um, once you graduate from your residency, you kind of your identity is with your professional society, and that's where you go for information. And I think that's the great opportunity here um, is to really work with the professional societies and and groups that Krista can talk about better than me, ClinBar and ClinGen, in terms of helping develop those those answers to those like what does this mean question and what what can I do about it. I think you brought up a great point too, Mira, about number of family members who are affected. Um, we used to base a lot of genetic testing guidelines on how many people do you have in your family who have this? And if you hit a th certain threshold, then you get a genetic test offered to you. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is a lot of families are a lot smaller nowadays, and you might not have enough family members to ever show evidence of disease. So back to how do we incorporate this as more of a screening test um, for individuals, because we know if somebody's identified to have a change in one of the BRCA1 genes, for example, that cause breast and ovarian cancer, we know we have to monitor them more closely um, to hopefully prevent them from ever having to get cancer in their lives. Um, and you can't predict who's going to be the person anymore just based on family history because you can be the first person. <laughs> yeah. And in that person's case, you know, that I that I talked about, you know, she was much younger than routine surveillance with mammograms start. So, you know, there was there was a chance that you could have identified her before she actually became symptomatic because she what she didn't fall within that in that that screening, you know, age group. Some of your comments have made me think of of another question. So you've talked a lot about risk and that there's lots of opportunities maybe for education to make people feel more comfortable with genetic information. Do you think that Part of this barrier is that if you talk to the genetic counselors 
and the geneticists and the people that work with the data every day, that they view it as a risk spectrum and that it's something that can be informative and that maybe there's a window of opportunity to intervene in versus maybe how people are taught genetics is more genetic determinism so that people don't know when they get a result that it perhaps is an increased or decreased risk for a certain outcome. And it doesn't mean that 100% they're going to get whatever bad thing could happen. I, you know, I think the answer, yes, to both of them. But, you know, I think yes to both of those. And I'd add a third is people just don't know what to do with it. Um, you know, I, I do think that geneticists, um, medical geneticists, laboratory geneticists, genetic counselors um, are very good at talking about risk. You know, but I think that in um, that that people in general don't have a hard time assessing risk. You know, like, what does one in 200 mean? You know, and in the end, it's either you or not you, <laughs> right? Um, and it just, it, it just, it, and that's the role of the physician at, or, the, or the healthcare provider um, is really getting people to understand what those numbers mean. But even more importantly, um, I think what's important is what are we going to do with it? And, you know, in someone that's not symptomatic, you really, I tend to focus on, okay, what do we do with this? Um, because, um, and, and let's, let's develop a way of screening you um, so that if you are the one in 200 or, you know, whatever, um, we'll identify it at an earlier stage so that we can take care of it rather than waiting for it to manifest clinically. So it's a way to kind of take that number, make it make it more real for them in some ways, but then, but then tell them that you're with them. <laughs> you know, we're going to be with you. We have, we have ways of, of, of screening you so that we can identify things early if they appear. When you talk about risk and people's perception, it's been interesting lately. Um, you know, people say, oh, it's only, so for instance, the American College of Medical um, Genetics and Genomics has a secondary finding list. That is now a list of genes that if an individual is having exome or genome sequencing, you should report that information back because it's medically useful and can be used to inform their health care. When I talk to people and I say, well, it's about three to four percent of people who get one of those types of results back, people are like, oh, that's not very many. But if I say it's one in 30 people in this room is going to get that type of result, all of a sudden people are like, oh, my gosh, one in 30. <laughs> There's a you know, and it, it really, it, the perception is just so different, even just describing a number in two different ways. Um, so it's interesting how people um, interpret that type of information and, and their risk for that. So I think it, um, you know, it's been very interesting discussion. And I'm thinking, you know, many people are going to uh, come to the precision healthcare arena in from many different directions, whether it be because they've received a direct-to-consumer test or maybe uh, information from a family member. And, you know, what does the future look like for, for all of those individuals now? I know that the the working group is, is sort of thinking about, you know, the next steps following on that. What really do we think, you know, the working group should look to the future for and, and what are you thinking for the next uh, workshops perhaps? Well, you know, the three things that, that 
sort of rose to the top of uh, possible next steps um, for the working group were, you know, helping gather the professional societies together with maybe ClinBar, ClinGen, and the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics to, to actually talk about developing guidance for, for what physicians can do. Um, there is a precedent for this. Um, you know, the, the ACM, the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, developed ACT sheets. They're called ACT sheets probably, I don't know, more than 10 years ago, um, probably closer to 20 years ago, um, that are um, each ACT sheets that are tied to newborn screening. Because newborn screening has been around for a long time, but, you know, it, it screens newborns. And then pediatricians, you know, get a call usually on a Thursday or Friday, quite often on a Thursday or Friday afternoon saying, you know, this baby in your care screened positive for this. And, and you know, it's, it's now in many, in many states, you know, 15, 20 different rare conditions that, that they're not familiar with. So it's, it's basically a this is what it is. This is what you do. This is what you return, you know, refer people to. So that that seemed to take to get some interest in developing something like that, and it was a way to bring the different specialties together. You know, the oncologists have used genetic testing, really genetic and genomic testing, really effectively in 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 treating cancer, and cardiology, you know, is there also. So I think that was the one that sort of rose to the top. And Chris, I'll let you talk about the others. Yeah, um, and I, you know, you mentioned ClinGen and ClinBar as two resources. I think it's important um, also to provide support for this type of information. So ClinGen in particular focuses on curating genes um, as well as variants in genes for what is the evidence that they are linked um, or associated with a particular disease. And so those types of resources to have available to the community um, to better standardize how we use this information, how we interpret this information, and what information is shared with patients, I think is really important too. And I think our next steps are focused around bringing together some of those groups like professional societies and then some of the resources like ClinGen or ClinBar, which is actually the database that holds that type of information, um, bringing them together to provide better overall guidance um, to help people adopt genomics into healthcare. Yeah, the other thing I'll say in terms of sort of next steps, um, I think, you know, and we, we, we heard this at the workshop and it's something we, I think we have to be really intentional about putting it on the table every time we talk about this is to really focus on, on equity and access and diversity. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I think especially with genetics, um, we have to sort of look around the room and make sure that that the patients that are coming to us for this testing do represent, you know, the, 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 the population of the United States and that um, everybody has access to this testing. But we also have to look at who's delivering the message um, and if whether the messages are coming from trusted sources. And so the genetics community, um, you know, one of the other work groups that you'll hear about is really, um, you know, diversity and equity and, and building this diverse workforce so that people actually are are getting their results and receiving the message um, from um, from trusted from trusted providers is really important. Well, 
Well, I appreciate both of you taking the time to sit down with Michelle and me today to talk about your working group and the both the challenges and opportunities for adopting genomic technology as part of standard clinical care. Thank you. Thank you. Been fun. That concludes this episode. Thanks for joining us with the Adoption Working Group. Next time, we'll talk to members of the Dialogue Working Group. Thank you.